How many of you guys in this room have an iPhone? Raise your hand if you got an iPhone. Um, raise your hand if you got an Android. Android. It's okay. We're not. We're not gonna. We're not gonna slam this. But if you have an iPhone, which a lot of people do, myself included, you know that iPhones have had a long history of of poor batteries, not having the greatest batteries. And even a lawsuit came out like years ago um, about how by newer phones coming out, they were almost intentionally slowing down older iPhone batteries. I don't know if you knew this, um, kind of forcing you in some way to upgrade and buy the new phones. So iPhones have for a long time have trouble, like whether it's them staying charged for a long time or man, just plugging them into the outlet and man, they're not charging up. But guess what? There was a guy in 2017 who said, you know what? iPhones have had a hard time with their batteries. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make a video to show people how they can quickly charge their iPhones. It's like, oh, yeah, you, you tired of just plugging it into the wall and uh, taking, sitting there for a long time? Guess what? I have the solution, and this is what it was. There was a, was a video out on this. He says, if you want your phone to be charged really quickly, you grab your phone, throw it in the microwave, boom. Turn it on, charges pretty fast. And guess what? There were a lot of people who said, wow, man, this guy must know something that we don't know. And so what did a lot of people do? Took their iPhones, threw it in the microwaves, and I guess some of you guys are like, does it work? Like, <laughs> it doesn't work. Um, oh, maybe it will be charged, but then something else is going to happen. It's not going to be good. And these people who were, had a problem, and they said, oh, man, this seems like a good solution, realized, man, we probably shouldn't be listening to this guy who just made this random YouTube video, and now we just are down hundreds of dollars because we just destroyed our iPhone. They went to the wrong person for advice. Now, I want you to think, so we're talking about advice and talking about counsel, if you have maybe a more serious problem, you have a decision that you need to make, and you're not sure what to do, who do you go to for counsel? Who do you go to as, man, I need some wisdom. I need some insight. Is it a person? Is it, is it an AI? Oh, let me look it up on a chat GPT. Like, they got to know what it is. is. Is it Google? Is it YouTube? Is it a parent? Is it a friend? Who is, who or what is the thing that you go to if you need some counsel? Does someone have that thing in their mind can, can give me a little nod if, if you, you can think of something that you go to or a person that you go to. Now, I want you to, this next question, would anybody be able to say in your life that, okay, if this person has a problem and they need some counsel, they need some godly wisdom, that they would say, man, I go to you to give me clarity. That, man, I know that you're the person that I would go to and ask this tough question. Is there anybody in our life that would say, man, Brett, that's who I go to if I need some godly wisdom and counsel. Aya, that's who I go to. Man, I'm, I'm torn in my mind. What should I do? Well, I know Aya always gives good advice, godly advice. That's who I should go to. I think a lot of us maybe look around and say, oh, I mean, maybe my friend would ask me, but like, I, I don't think people really are asking us for wisdom and counsel. What a good thing it would be if you could be an individual that others could say, I always know who to go to, this person, because they're always going to give me godly wisdom and counsel in this situation. And if we want to be these people that others come to and we help people with their problems, we need to make sure that we are wise individuals. And in our passage today, James chapter 3, verse 17, go turn there right now in your Bibles if you haven't already, it's going to show us what a wise individual looks like 
What are the characteristics of someone who is wise? Someone who you would want to go to for counsel, for insight, for understanding. Remember James 3.13, we talked about a little bit last week. It says, who is wise and understanding among you? So who is the wise person? Who is understanding? The answer was, look at their conduct. Evaluate their conduct. And last week we said, well, foolishness or worldly wisdom is characterized by, oh, just look at me, self-focused. Oh, I'm the greatest. Pride, ego, kind of like um, King Nebuchadnezzar that we study, this ego all about myself. Someone who only cares about this life. Oh, this life is all that there is. That's worldly wisdom. But now what are the qualities of someone who is wise? Not just the negative qualities. Okay, they're not prideful. They're uh, focused on eternity. But what are some positive qualities? Look at verse 17. There's quite a bunch. That's why we got a lot of points. (laughs) Keep up. We're going to go fast. Look at James 3, verse 17. It says, but the wisdom from above, so from God, godly wisdom, this is what it looks like. It's first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. These are the characteristics of someone who is wise. And even that word is, someone who is pure, is peaceable, is gentle, it's not just, hey, this was a one-time instance of, oh man, you, you were a, a, a someone who was striving for peace in this one situation. No, it's an ongoing quality. Are these qualities general characteristics in your life or not? Well, if you're wise, these are going to be seen as fruits in your life. In verse 18, it says, a harvest of righteousness, so a lot of right behavior is sown in peace by those who make peace, focusing on peaceable. Someone who makes peace, they're going to be sown, and there's going to be a lot of righteous behavior that comes. So let's unpack what are some of each of these qualities to see, are we people who are wise or not? First one, it says pure. Someone who is first pure. The first quality of someone who is wise is, look at your conduct. Are you someone who lives a pure life? Pure, that word, is translated elsewhere as holy. You see in the Bible, holy, pure. It's the idea of of without defect, without impurities. It is right, it's good. See, God wants his people to be holy, to be pure. You think of holiness throughout scripture. Maybe you think of the book that we um, finished last week, or sorry, yesterday in our DBR, the book of Leviticus, and how God gave all these rules to the nation of Israel. And he says, do this, don't do this, eat this, don't eat this, wear this, don't wear this, all these rules. And why did God give those rules? Have you ever thought about that? Why to Israel did he give all these commands? Think in your minds, well, well, because God wanted to ruin all the fun for them. Yeah, he just wanted to make it so that their lives stunk. Is that why? No, he wanted Israel, his special people, to be living distinct lives, holy lives, which means separate than all these other sinful nations that were engaging all sorts of immoral practices. He said, no, this is the right way to live. This is how I want you to live. It's actually going to be better for you if you follow these dictates, these commands. You're holy. You're set apart. He gave them. But guess what? They broke them all the time. They broke these rules. That's why all these sacrifices had to be made. So they said, hey, I'm not able to keep all your rules, God. I break them all the time. I'm an impure person. But guess what? These sacrifices were there to atone for the idea of covering or cleansing the wrongdoing, obviously pointing forward to Christ. And see, God not only wanted the people in Leviticus to be pure, the Israelites, he calls that for us today. 
in reference to Leviticus in 1 Peter, it says, but as he, which is God, who called you is holy. Think about it. God is holy. He's without sin, perfect, set apart, distinct, without any defect or wrongdoing. God, he's, he's holy. Guess what? As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So it is, since it is written, says Leviticus 11 here, you shall be holy for I am holy. God's a holy God. He says, hey, I want my people to be holy. Well, how did the people in Leviticus know, well, what's holy, what's not holy? How do they know that? What is pure? What's impure? Right here. God had to give them the commands. Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, uh, additional regulations. This is from God. Maybe you guess, oh, does God want me to do this? Okay, I, I think so, maybe. I mean, oh, we have consciences, and so we have the certain level of God's law written on our minds and on our hearts, so we know to some extent what is right and wrong, but he's made it very clear by giving us direct commands. I mean, we think, oh, this is just James talking to us. No, it's, it's, these are God's words to us. Leviticus, oh, yeah, well, Moses wrote them down. No, these are God's words to us. This is how we know what is pure and what is impure. This is how we know whether we are living holy lives or unholy lives. Point number one, if you want to be someone who is wise, be devoted to this book right here, to Scripture. Be devoted to God's Word. That's how you're going to be wise. Psalm 19, verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. God's Word's perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It's, it's, it's confident. It's, it's what's right. Now this phrase, making wise the simple. God's word takes simple people and makes them wise. Like simple, like maybe foolish, dumb, not the smartest. But anybody be like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm simple. Any simple people in the room? It's like maybe some of us are honest enough to say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm probably a more simple person. But guess what? You want to be wise be in this book. Be all about it. There's this connection between being in the word, being in scripture, and being someone who's living a pure life. It's how you know how you ought to live. Give me an illustration to explain. Imagine if I took, let's say, two of you in like Bear grill style, put you on, a, on an island to survive on your own. I was like, let's just pick two people. Um, Let's say, okay, Matthew and Madison. All right, there you go. Matthew and Madison, you're on this two island to figure out on opposite sides of the island. Good luck figuring it out on your own. Just other side, like, don't worry. I won't put you guys together. Opposite side, guy side, girl side. Good luck. Figure it out. Imagine on that abandoned island where you just got whatever resources, there's no, like, fresh water to drink. But rather, in the middle of this island, there's this, this dirty swamp, this dirty swamp with, like, stagnant water. And you have to say, okay, well, i got to figure out how to get fresh water to drink, or else guess what? I'm going to die. Um, there's, there's no cameraman there who's going to like, okay, if this doesn't work out, here's some, actually some real water, you know, like Bear Girl style. It's like, no, you got to figure it out on your own. But guess what I'm going to give Madison? Madison, guess what? Here are the instructions of how you take dirty water and you filter it to make it pure. Matthew, uh, good luck. <laughs> Good luck on your own. Now, who's going to have an even easier time taking this water, this disgusting thing, the smelly mosquitoes right on top, black water, and making it fresh water? Who's, who's going to have an easier time with that? Madison. I mean, Matthew, maybe he's, he's 
trying to like, oh, if I add enough like leaves onto it or like, you know, maybe I toss it up in the air and the like impurities are going to come out. Like, he's just figuring it out on his own. And maybe, maybe perhaps he stumbles upon it and he, he saw, oh, I remember something about heat. You got to heat it up. And maybe he stumbles across it, but it's like, he's still kind of guessing. Oh, I don't know. Maybe I just, maybe figuring it out. Whereas Madison, she's like, I know how to do this. It's written right here, the instructions. The hard part is enacting the instructions, but at least I know this is how you do it carry that over into our lives. How are we going to know and say, man, I'm confident that I'm living a pure life? Well, if you're abandoning scripture, not being in the word regularly, guess what? You can stumble across it. Oh yeah, just happen to do the right thing here. No, but you can know for certain you're doing what God wants you to if you're in this book, if you're in the truth. If you're a Christian, you want to be sanctified, which is made more holy and you know how Christ said you're sanctified? John 17, 17 says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You wanna be sanctified? Be in this book. I want you to turn to Psalm 119. It talks more about how if we're devoted to scripture, we can be living how we ought to. I think it's fitting that the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is in large part talking about scripture, about the importance of being in this in this book, not just any other book, not just like your textbook at school, written by man, a math textbook, or you know, a science biology book. It's, it's different. Yeah, written by human authors, but as we established over the summertime, if you remember all these objections that we uh, brought up in Scripture, it's just made by these old authors, or there's a bunch of errors in it, or there's a bunch of atrocities. We hit on those over the summer. No, these is God's inspired words to us. What he wants us to hear. Psalm 119, drop down to verse 9. So fitting that we're talking about purity and and scripture, that connection. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way? What does it say? Pure. You want to know this? Young men. Young women. Not just saying just guys here. It's like, oh yeah, girls, guess what? Scripture's not the answer. No, it's saying, hey, you want to know how to live a pure life? By guarding it according to your word. What is God's word? How can I guard my way and line it up with it? Verse 10, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Let me align myself. What does God's word want me to do? I'm gonna align right up with it. Verse 11, I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You, memorizing God's word? Even though it says guarding it according to your word. As guarding our path, but it even makes me think of guarding our our time in the word. Do you guard that time in God's word, your quiet time, whether it's in the morning or at nighttime? Do you guard it? Do you have God's word stored up in your heart and in your mind? You memorized it? Verse 12, blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Do we come to scripture with this humility of what does God want to teach me today? That's a great mindset to have. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. I'm just in God's word so much, I just can't help but declare it. Tell other people about it. Verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I'm joyful to be in the word. Do you wake up and you're excited? So, man, what is God going to teach me today? That's the mindset you should have. I will meditate on your precepts. I will fix my eyes on your ways I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. We should have such an excitement for God's word that we're just 
devoted to it day in and day out. How can you be more devoted to Scripture moving forward than you were in the past? And I think immediately when we say I'm more devoted, that just means I need to be in the Bible more. So I just need to fill up more time. And I'm not, not necessarily the case. Maybe you're in God's Word, but the time that you're in God's Word, you need to make it more effective. You need to really focus in take that time. Being more devoted to scripture isn't necessarily all, okay, I was reading for 10 minutes. Now I'm going to start reading for 20 minutes. For some of us, maybe it is taking it to that next step. Maybe some of you just read the New Testament because, oh, that's what applies to us. The Old Testament, well, that's not written anymore for us. So uh, who cares? Don't need to read that. No, be devoted to scripture. It's all inspired by God. All scriptures breathed out by God. You know that passage? 2 Timothy 3, profitable, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You want to be, be equipped, ready? All scripture. Don't neglect the Old Testament. I mean, it's from the Old Testament that we're able to see some of the beauties of the New Testament. Imagine if you just didn't read any of the, the Pentateuch, which is Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. You read none of that. And you're reading the New Testament, and it talks about Jesus being the Lamb of God. And you're like, it's kind of weird. What, is Jesus a sheep? Like, what? Why, why is he the Lamb of God? But because you've read the Old Testament, you've seen the sacrifices that they were due, specifically on the Day of Atonement, how they were to sacrifice in the Holy of Holies this, this animal and to, to set the... Um, set the sins of this people on this goat and send them out. If you know these things, say, man, it was through these sacrifices that they were atoning for the sins of the people back then. And how all this was pointing forward to Christ, who it was one sacrifice for all men. Says, man, now there's some richness and some depth and some understanding to that phrase where before you'd say, lamb of God, what? Like, he's God's sheep? Like, what does that mean? So much in there. So much to be applied You think, oh, I can't apply any of that stuff. No, the holiness that God commands in the Old Testament, he wants of us as well. Being devoted to God's word. That's the first quality. Second one, peaceable. Peaceable. It's a broad term, just just desiring peace in general. So it could be someone who's free from anxiety, free from worry. But I think what's really going through this, especially because of the context of James 4 coming right after this, it's, it's talking about relational peace, not just internal peace, but between other people. It's kind of the, the opposite of um, someone who's stirring up trouble, stirring up conflict, starting arguments. It's someone who not only desires peace between whether themselves or between other people, but goes about to make sure that happens. Point number two, if you want to be wise, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. There's so much conflict that takes place in our day-to-day lives. I just was writing some down this week. What, what, what's some conflict that takes place? How about this? You and your parents? You ever have a conflict between you and your parents? Uh, yeah. Chores that they want me to do or schoolwork, talking about that. How about between your parents and each other? Between your parents, arguing over something? How about you and your siblings? Oh, they ate that last little bit of Fruity Pebbles. And it's like, oh, why'd you do that? Maybe it's just me. Like, oh, ah, no, it's for me. It's conflict. How about between your siblings? Oh, fighting over, like, who gets the bathroom first? Oh, it's my time to use. It's like, conflict between them. 
How about this? You and your friends. It's like, oh, the two guys like the same girl. And oh, guess what? Now it's a conflict because, oh, man, oh, I liked her. So I liked her. The girl's, oh, no. How's my crush? Like, what? You can't say like, How's this conflict going on? Internal, making a decision. Oh, and you're torn. You're kind of wrestling back and forth. Group projects. Someone is slacking in the group and you're like, come on, you got to do your fair share of the work. And now there's this conflict because they're lazy and not doing it. Or sports teams where that person's getting playing time and this person's not getting playing time and they're ahead of them on the, the, the depth chart. And it's like, oh, frustration and all these conflicts that take place. And in the midst of when you're when you're in that conflict that you say, man, how good of a thing it is for there to be peace and not chaos. I mean, I learned that, how good a, a thing peace was when I was on the honeymoon. And as I told you before, I took a boat out and we're, we're out on this boat looking up at the Nepali coast and the waves start getting a little choppy and my stomach right there with it starts getting a little anxious and I'm like, like, man, is there a place on the boat? And I asked one of the people working there, is there a place on the boat where, you know, be, be less, less choppy, less chaotic? Oh, go to the back of the boat. They said, it's much more peaceful back there. I get back there, and guess what? It's not much more peaceful. Huh? My stomach keeps churning, churning, churning. And in that moment, I'm like, man, I just wish there was peace. Peace. I was like trying to be Jesus. Peace, be still water. But it didn't work. It was like, <laughs> it just kept going. Not Jesus. Like, okay, well, still going. Guess what? Threw up. <laughs> it's like... Man, I wish there was peace. Have you ever had a conflict? It's you and that other person, that friend. And maybe it's between the friend group and people are taking sides. And all of a sudden there's factions between groups. And it's, oh man, I'm on this side and they're on that side. This conflict, people aren't talking as much. Text messages are being sent and you're just sitting there. You're like, man, I wish there was peace. In those instances, we realize how good of a thing it is when there is peace. Are you someone who's always in the middle of conflict? Well, you're probably not a peacemaker. Always certain rumors, using your words to divide people. Or do you say, man, there's a conflict, say, between two other people? Let's reconcile. Let's make peace. Let's make it right. A wise person says, hey, let's get rid of all these frivolous, silly arguments. Let's find a way for there to be peace. How to bring peace. Use scripture. That's why you got to be devoted to it. Learn how to de-escalate situations. Watching your words. Not letting anger run rampant. Be a peacemaker. Colossians 3, it gives some steps, I think, of how we can be people who make peace. Verses 12, let me read it. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, a care for others, kindness, humility, not insisting on my own way, meekness, patient, be patient with other people. Impatience is a huge cause of not being peace, but being chaos. Verse 13, bearing with one another. Look at this one. If one has a complaint against another, so I have got this against you, that you did this to me, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Are you a forgiving individual? A wise person forgives. I think forgiveness connects with the next word in James chapter 3. We said, if you want to be wise, be someone who's pure, someone who's peaceable. This next one, gentle. city of kind, graciousness. It's the opposite of someone who's maybe violent, quarrelsome. No, it's the opposite of someone, man, 
kind of connects with peace, peacefulness in some way. Someone being a peacemaker. But say, hey, if someone wrongs me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to escalate it. Bring it to another level. Point number three, if you want to be wise, be willing to overlook wrongs. Be willing to overlook wrongs. That's that connection between forgiveness. Someone does something to me, I'm just going to overlook it. Make it not as big of a deal. You remember this passage in Matthew 18? Peter comes up to Jesus and says, how much do, how much do I need to forgive my brother? You remember that? He says, as many as, how many? Seven times is the question. He asks, how many? Seven times? Jesus, am I really supposed to forgive him seven times? Imagine that. Someone in small groups pokes you in the side. And you like, get frustrated with them. Then the next week, they come back and they jab you again in the side. And you're like, okay, twice, I forgive them. Three, imagine seven weeks in a row, that person, whatever it is, against you. You're going to be like, really? No, I'm done. Jesus says, yeah, you think seven Times is a lot? 77, which isn't like, oh, keep track, and then once it's 77, it's like, all right, I'm done. It was 77. Jesus says 77. No, it's saying above and beyond. Forgive, forgive, forgive. Don't hold grudges with other people. There's examples in Scripture of people who held grudges, and it didn't work out well for them. I mean, Jacob and Esau, think about that. Esau, first off, steals the birthright from his brother Jacob. Remember? Makes this transaction. He's like, sorry, Jacob steals it from Esau. Thanks for that correction. Uh, Maybe you guys should be up here teaching. Uh, Jacob steals it from Esau. Remember? Esau's like, oh, I'm really hungry. And Jacob's like, okay, Shark Tank, here's the deal. I will take all of your your birthright for a soup. And it's like the worst deal in the, the his, transaction of history. It's like the history of transaction. It's like, why'd you do that deal? Well, guess what? He gets frustrated. He gets angry. And then again, Rebecca, his mom, helps Jacob steal the blessing. He puts on, remember, goat skins on to, to deceive his dad. He steals it. And guess what? Esau gets so frustrated. In one verse, it says that he is resolved to kill his brother. That's how angry, how frustrated he gets. Because that wrong, he wells up and he holds that grudge. If you remember that story, how it keeps going, and uh, they end up splitting ways for a while, Jacob kind of runs for his life, and eventually they come together again, and Jacob's like really nervous about meeting his brother. You remember this back in Genesis, do the Old Testament DBR? And he's like sending him gifts, like, oh, sending him a lot of cattle, and you know, gifts after gifts after gifts, and like bowing down. It's like, man, he's going to be so angry. At that point, finally, when they meet face to face, they embrace each other, and it realizes, man, Esau had forgiven him. Didn't... It took him a while to let it go, but finally he wasn't holding on to that grudge anymore. Even though something that was rightfully his was taken away from him. If something that's rightfully yours was taken away by someone else, do you hold a grudge? Let it go. How about Joseph's brothers with Joseph? Joseph says something that they don't like, so what do they do? Sell him off to Egypt. Ship him on, ship him on out. Guess what? They get humbled by that dream that he says coming to fruition because they have to bow down and beg to him for food when there's a famine taking place. They were humbled. If someone says something that you don't like, do you like Joseph's brothers and you hold that grudge angry? Cain and Abel. I mean, that grudge, Cain took the, to the ultimate extreme of saying, I'm going to kill my own brother out of a grudge against someone else. Saul and David, 
Saul became jealous of David because they were promoting him as this mighty warrior and he didn't like that. And so, you know, Saul tried to kill David like how many times? It felt like chapter and chapter again. Oh, try to kill him again. Try to kill him again. It's like grudges make you do stupid things. Overlook wrongs. Let it go. Romans 12, don't have time to read it, verses 16 through 20, talk about living in harmony with one another, not retaliating against each other, but saying, God is the one who judges. I'm going to let him be the one who judges. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Leave it to him. Don't try to get even. Let, let that wrong, guess what? A lot of wrong things are going to happen. You become friends and close friends with people long enough. Guess what? People are going to wrong you because they're sinful. But can we overlook it? It's a very good principle in marriage because you're living with another sinner, and guess what? You sin against each other all the time. You've got to overlook wrongs. Yeah, are there times when you call someone out for a sin? Yeah, and you have some confrontation that, that's needed? Yes, but oftentimes we hold these grudges against things that oh, you shouldn't. It's not that big a deal. Think if you were on the other side of that. If someone held a grudge against you because of something maybe you said inadvertently that like you didn't maybe necessarily intend and this person's got this big old grudge against you and they finally said, well, it's because you said this to me. And you'd probably sit there and be like, like I was joking. Like, like really, you made this mountain out of a molehill? Like why'd you make this big thing out of just that one thing that I, little, that I said? See, we give ourselves grace when it's our thing that caused someone to be frustrated. But if someone does something against us, then we hold on to it. The wise person is willing to overlook these wrongs. You want to be wise? Be pure. How do we be pure? Be in scripture. Be a peacemaker, peaceable. Next, gentle. Overlook. Someone does something wrong. Going to overlook it. Next, open to reason. Open to reason. This is translated in some other translation as submissive or compliant. Um, or a phrase that's kind of interesting. Uh, easily persuaded. Um, similar, kind of conveying easily persuaded. You think, wait, a wise person is easily persuaded? It's like, that's not a good thing. Like, like, hey guys, there's a hundred bucks taped to the ceiling. It's like, yeah, how many of us are like gold? But like, really, that's a good thing to be, be gold? It's like, that's not what it's talking about. Not like this goldness of, oh, you guys didn't see the hundred bucks? Well, it's because there's 200 bucks up there. Quick, look. No. <laughs> it's not like that sort of like weakness, a gullibility, but it's this, it's the opposite of this person who is like so firm and set in their ways that if someone tries to say something, oh, have you thought about this? It's like, uh, no, 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 I can't listen. I know it. No, open to reason. I want someone who's willing to listen. Put it this way. If you want to be wise, be teachable. Be teachable. We act like we know it all. You have someone at school that in your class who's a know-it-all? Anybody? If you can't think of anybody, then it's you. No, it's like, who, who, who's that person's know-it-all who's like, the teacher asks questions, and they're always like, I know, I know, I know. And they're answering. And then the one time the teacher says something, and the person raises their hand, and they say, oh, that's actually not true. You said it's incorrect. It's actually this. And you're like, oh, man, you're sitting with the popcorn in the back, like, what is going to happen right here? They called out the teacher for someone being wrong. And then the teacher says, no, actually, you're incorrect, and goes and explains how they're correct, and you're just like, I need more popcorn. Like, man, like, like, wow, that person just got slammed, crushed. Nobody likes to know it all. Nobody like, oh, I've got all the answers. Yeah, I don't need to listen. Nobody likes that. 
guess what? You're missing out on opportunities to learn by that, saying, I already have it figured out. I think there's one spectrum, people who know it all, act like they know it all. The other side is people who, they don't listen, not because they think they know it all, but just because they don't care. Like, oh, I don't really care to learn. I don't really care to know. Maybe this verse is helpful for you. Proverbs 18, 15, it says, an intelligent person acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. So guess what? A wise person's never gonna sit back and say, oh, I mean, learning, that's nerdy. Like, uh, well, I don't wanna be a nerd, glasses, like, uh, that's lame. No, guess what? If you wanna be a wise person, the ear of the wise, what do they seek out? Knowledge, knowledge. You say, there's things that I need to know. And I think we all know which side of the spectrum we naturally bend towards, and we both need that correction of be teachable. There's so much for us to learn. Psalm 86, 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Who are the people in your life that you can learn from? Obviously, we start with God's word, but what can you learn from your parents? If you approach each interaction with a teachable attitude, I think it's funny how maybe your parents will say something maybe a lot in your childhood, and then all of a sudden, like your small group leader, Jose, maybe will say like this exact same thing, and it's like, whoa, you'll go home like, man, I had this really great insight. Like Jose said this, and your parents are like, I've been saying that the entire time. But all of a sudden, because it's like not your parents, it's like, oh, wow enlightened. Wow, wow. There's truth right there. And Cozy just spewed out that my dad's been saying for years, but all of a sudden, oh, it's like, whoa. You know, your parents have so much wisdom and insight that if you just listened, not just listen, because I almost had point four, it said, be a good listener, but that's the first step because a lot of us listen, but we're not teachable. You hear it, but there's no, oh man, I should do something about it. That, that is true for me. I need to apply what they're saying because we think we know it all or because we don't care. Your small group leaders, what can you learn from them? See, if you have a teachable attitude, what you should be doing is taking every interaction with your small group leader, every time you interact with them and say, what can I learn from them in this situation? every interaction. You shouldn't view your small group leader as, oh, they're just like a buddy or a peer or whatever. No, you should view them as your leader and there's things for you to learn from them no matter what they're doing. What, what, I can learn from my leader like playing basketball? Like what, like what I'm saying about learn from them is not like, oh, like watching Cozy's form, like he's a good shooter. So like, it's like, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying what you can learn from them then is how do they respond if they win? How do they respond if they lose in a game? How do they respond in pickleball when they get out? When they, in ping pong, things aren't going their way. See, if you take every interaction with them and say, how do they act in this situation? Things are going well. How do they act? They're kind of neglected. How do they act? You're acquiring so much wisdom and you're not just sitting back, oh yeah, I'm just playing pickleball with my friends or playing basketball with my friends. You're saying, there's something for me to learn about the way that they are living that I can be more wise if I say, what can I learn? Whether it's pastors, parents, teachers, small group leaders, say, what can I learn from them? If not, you're gonna miss out on so much. 
And guess what? Your leaders, there's things for them to learn too. And they've got older, more mature believers in their life who are teaching them things. And they're saying, what can I learn? Next. So he said, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Good fruits is just good behavior. So general category, good behavior. But this next one, full of mercy. So this is a kindness, a concern, a care for other people. Someone who is wise is, is what I put here in point number five, is compassionate. Be compassionate. Mark 6, 34, it talks about how Christ, when he sees these crowds, a bunch of people who are doing their own thing, neglecting God, says he had compassion on them. Compassion, this is, this is like this feeling in your stomach, this deep like concern that you care about them so much you can like physically feel it, like the ache and pain, like, man, they're not right with God. I, I really feel it. And what does it cause him to do? He began to teach them many things. His compassion led to action. A lot of us don't take action to care for other people because internally we don't have a concern for other people. We don't really care and love others like Christ would want us to. We don't care about unbelievers. We don't care about people outside of our small group. So we're just going to sit at TNN just with our small group. Just about the group. And even our small group, we say we care about our small group, but do we? Because compassion leads to action. And if we say we care about our small group, how have you shown that you care about your small group? Do you pray for them? Do you reach out to them, not just on the weekends, Wednesday, throughout the week? Compassion leads to action. A wise person cares, has a concern for other people. New people, when they come in, do you have compassion? Christ would be the most welcoming person here in the narrow. New person comes in, guess what? Hey, I want you to get connected to, to, to the narrow. Why? Because I want you saved and sanctified. That's what Christ was all about. He wouldn't say, oh man, I'm just going to stay with the... I mean, he got in trouble by people because he was hanging with the tax collectors and sinners. Remember? He said, went to the, the people who were sick. Those were the ones that, that needed to not be sick anymore. Do we care about other people? Next. Is it compassionate? We're on, what is it, six now. We want to be wise, be pure, be peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. Next, impartial, impartial. Impartial is the positive way of saying it. Originally, it's, it's a negative, and the negative is, is a, like not treating people differently depending upon who they are. You think of partiality we talked about in James chapter 2. Remember, the new person was coming into the congregation. They were saying, oh, the rich person, oh, come sit here at the front. Remember that? It's like, oh, yeah, sit here. Oh, yeah, poor person, get out of here. Go away in the back. Sit on the ground. Uh, it's like treating people differently. That's the idea of partiality, saying don't do that, impartial, the opposite of that. Rather than being divisive, making groups, point number six, be a unifier, be a unifier. Division is damaging within the church, within families, within friends. It can be so divisive with our speech. Psalm 133.1 says this, a great verse. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. How good a thing it is when brothers 
It's talking about people in the part of the family of God when we are united. I mean, I learned how true that that verse was when brothers dwell in unity. When I was living with some brothers last year um, as some roommates, had a couple roommates, and I learned how quickly it was when we dwelled in unity. Because guess what? There were a lot of conversations we had that would cause some conflict. Someone's like, well, what's the right way to, uh, to put the toilet paper on the toilet paper roll? Is it this way or is it the back way? Some say it's this way, so others saying it's that way. What way to put the, the silverware in the dishwasher? Do you put it with like the prongs up or the prongs down? We were split on that. It's like, no, why are you putting it up? No, it's supposed to be down, up, no, down, up, down. It's like, ah, oh. the, the little thing on where you put the laundry detergent in the, in the uh, washing machine. The cap on that thing, do you throw it in with the, the laundry or do you keep it out? Some people say you throw it in. Others are like, why do you throw it in? No, it cleans it if you throw it in by putting it in. It's like, no, it's plastic. Why are you supposed to put it in there? It's like, not sure what to do. Who's not doing their chores? You, sh- you should be doing your chores. Who's not doing it? Well, who keeps leaving the lights on when they're leaving? Oh, I'm supposed to turn them off. Oh, it's you. No, it's you. Why is someone throwing floss picks down the toilet? Like, well, like who is this? Like, what's going on? It's like, these are all real conversations <laughs> that were being had. It's like, Maybe some more serious, but a lot of just frivolous, like, oh, why are you doing that that way? It's my opinion. This is how we've always done it. Well, this is how we've always done it. Psalm 33, 33.1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Such a good thing. Can you bring people together when you're playing pickleball? When you're playing basketball, rather than trash talking and tearing people down with your words, oh, I don't want them on my team. Oh, they're awful. You see their shot? It's like, no, I want to bring people together. We're playing board games. Where you sit at TNN, are you a unifier? Or are you, oh, if you're not in our small group, you can't sit with us. Because this is just where our small group sits. New people, be unifier. Last one, sincere. This is, once again, the positive way of saying it, whereas originally it's, it's the idea of not being a hypocrite. Being genuine is sometimes how it's translated. Sincere, honest, not putting on two faces, acting one way one place, one way somewhere else. It's this pattern of life that is regular. Point number seven, be consistent. Be consistent. Consistency is crucial. Not acting one way at church, another way at school. Guess what? The wise person, because they're not afraid and have fear of God over man, they don't have to act different at school because that's what the kids at school would want. And a different way at church because that's how they would want. No, I'm acting one way, all the same, consistently, because that's what a wise person would do, a godly person would do. I know this consistency and not being a hypocrite was something that's even true in my own testimony. I mean, I professed to be a Christian around fifth or sixth grade. I said, I genuinely thought I was a Christian because I prayed a prayer and said, I don't want to go to hell. Um, But if you looked at the pattern of my life from fifth until about ninth grade, all the way throughout junior high, I I thought I was a Christian. I wasn't trying to trick people. I genuinely thought I was. I think maybe other people in my life probably would have said, oh, yeah, that's a good Christian kid. But what was true was I would act one way at church, different way at school, a different way at home not realizing, oh, that was a bad thing. 
And it wasn't until I reached ninth grade and I heard some leaders share their testimonies and they didn't just get to the part where it was like, oh, then I repented and put my trust in Christ. They said, well, after, and they explained all the change that they saw took place in their life. I realized a change didn't take place in mine. I was being a hypocrite and acting different ways, different places, because guess what? Really didn't have Christ transform my desires. Had a fear of man where I was just trying to fit in wherever I could. It wasn't until I finally surrendered Christ being Lord over my life that I was able to live a consistent life. If you're, you want to be someone who's wise, be consistent. It kind of summarizes all these things. It's easy to be teachable one moment and then the rest of life, oh, I'm not teachable, but I was teachable that one moment. No, think of consistency in all these different categories. Purity, being in God's word, peaceable, being a, someone a peacemaker, gentle, overlooking offenses, open to reason, someone who's teachable, willing to listen, full of mercy, compassionate, caring towards other people, impartial, not dividing, not treating people differently depending upon who they are, sincere, consistent, not a hypocrite. If you want to be someone that other people can come to for counsel, think about it. You have a problem. Are you going to go to the person who has their life like totally in shambles? That's the person yeah, that I want to go to. They seem like they got it all figured out. It's like, no. You go to the person, you look at their conduct, and they say, man, I see these things because this is what God would say is wise. Now say, can I put those things into practice in my own life so that other people, if they have problems, they say, I can go to them because they are wise. I pray that we can grow in wisdom. And I know there's a lot of points. It's like, how can I even do all of this? Maybe take that area, maybe in those first six points, and say, what area do I need to grow in the most? And say, this week, that's what I'm focusing on. Be able to talk about it more in small groups and dive deeper than we could, um, even in this message. So let's pray. God, we want to be wise. We don't want to be foolish. We don't want to be dumb. We don't want to live from a life with regrets looking back. God, we can only do that if we have wisdom from above. So help us to pursue the qualities of wisdom. Help us to start by being in your word so we can see the attributes and the ways that you would want us to act and live. God, help us to do this out of a love for you not have so merely we can just think that we're smarter than other people. God, we want to be more and more like your son, so help us to do that this week. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.